Hi everybody, I'm Dustin. I'm Anna. And we are not qualified to investigate the paranormal. But we might be more qualified than David Duchovny. Ooh. Okay, welcome back everybody. If this is your first time listening, welcome in. Hi. This is a podcast. It's kind of a paranormal podcast, but we try to spin things into somewhat of a more exp- a more reasonable explanation. Maybe reasonable is not the right way to say that. Mundane. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we try to make the paranormal boring. Yeah, so we're just thanks taking... <laughs> for thanks for listening in. If you haven't already stopped listening, great. And this is going to make you want to listen even less. So usually when we start things, oh, first off, let's do some uh, housekeeping. Mm-hmm. If you have a story that you'd like for us to talk about or investigate or a topic or a topic or you just have a question about one of our previous episodes, please send us a email to stories at paranormaloutsiders.com. Yeah. We'd love to hear from you. Yeah. What we, what we want to do here is talk about the quote paranormal and identify what we think from our respective backgrounds might be more normal explanations. Right. Absolutely. And so with that being said, we are going to jump into a story. And I think every single episode so far I've said... I'm really excited about this story. Mm-hmm. This is an exception. Oh no! <laughs> I was and it's not. Say, I don't want you to come in and be like, "Eh, I feel kind of whatever." No, about this. it's not that I feel whatever about it. It's that when it comes to paranormal stories, these types of paranormal stories, I'm usually just kind of on board with. To be honest with you, it's not that I automatically believe what's going on or what they think is going on, but I'm more likely to believe this type of paranormal story more than any other type of paranormal story. Mm. It's a subset. It's a a sub-genre, if you will, Mm -hmm. of paranormal stories. Yeah, I think we each have our, ooh, whenever I hear that type of thing, I'm intrigued areas. That was the most big way of saying that. And if we haven't lost you yet, this is a big one. (laughs) It it might be the biggest one in this sub-genre. You mean like the most famous story? Yeah, or at least the one that kind of set all the other stories going. Oh, man. It's not the earliest by any stretch of the imagination, depending on what you watch on the History Channel. (laughs) The History Channel. Oh, I might be giving even, I might be giving this away what this is already, but don't um, even get me started on the History Channel. First of all, people who are listening in, you already know what this is about because the title of the episode is going to be the the what I'm talking about. But um, anyway, so uh, I'm ready to start telling the story. Tell me a story. On a cool September evening in 1961, Betty and Barney Hill were driving home to Portsmouth from a vacation in Niagara Falls and Montreal. The vacation was a nice change of pace, but they were eager to get back home to their life. Betty was a social worker and Barty was employed by the U.S. Postal Service. They were also both community leaders and volunteers for the NAACP and the United States Commission on Civil Rights and had a full week ahead of them. As they journeyed through the White Mountains of New Hampshire, a strange light in the sky caught their attention. Barney, look at that, Betty said, pointing to the mysterious luminescence dancing in the night sky. Barney, a seasoned plane watcher and World War II veteran, pulled over and peered through his binoculars. Might be a commercial airliner, he said initially, but as he observed its erratic movement, he knew better. Not wanting to scare Betty, he kept this to himself and suggested they get back in the car and continue on their way home. But the object started to follow them. As it moved closer and closer, descending towards their location, fear prickled at the back of their necks. Is that a thing? Fear did what? The fear prickled (laughs) at the back of their necks? Like fear personified? Yeah, I guess. Fear prickled at (laughs) the back of their necks. The back of their necks tingled with fear? Like 
the hair on the back of their necks was standing up. They got the goosebumps. I know everybody's like, didn't you write this? Kind of. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Barney, starting to realize that they were actually being followed, gunned the engine and they sped away. But the object easily caught up, hovering ominously over the car. Since they were clearly not going to outrun this object, Barney pulled over once more. And this time, he looked through his binoculars. To Barney, it looked like a huge pancake hovering 100 feet above them, and it was almost comical in appearance. But then he saw something that made his blood run cold. Betty, there are people, or some creature in there. I can see them looking at us, he said, his voice trembling. The terror in his eyes was intense. From how far away? Uh, 80 to 100 feet. He had binoculars. Mm -hmm. I don't know how much closer binoculars in 1961 would have made anything, but anyway. In Barney's head, he heard the beings communicate and say, Stay where you are and keep looking. Suddenly, a series of rhythmic beeping and buzzing sounds filled the car. The vehicle vibrated and then everything went blank. The next thing they knew, they were back in the car and heading home on the highway. The object and the psychic voices were gone without a trace. And Barney was in the car driving, staring at the dark rural road as it passed, without being able to remember how and when they had started driving again. They were back in the car? Yeah, they were like driving. Okay. When they woke up or whatever you want to say. Mm-hmm. When they got home, they noticed that the clock on the wall said they were two hours behind their scheduled arrival time. Barney looked down at his wristwatch and noticed it had stopped working hours ago. They both started to try and recall what had happened. Barney and Betty both noticed tears in their clothes and scuffs on their shoes. Barney kept having the urge to examine his genitals, and both Barney and Betty felt the immediate need to shower and wash off any contamination it's so textbook not that there's a textbook on this but it's (laughs) we'll get into that the next morning after a restless night's sleep betty took a closer look at her torn dress from the night before and noticed a fine pink powder that had accumulated on it barney inspected the car and noticed concentric circles that had been burned into the car's trunk that weren't there that when they got home the night before the hills once again tried to recollect what had happened But every time they did, they would hear a buzzing sound in their heads and were unable to recall what happened. In the following days, Betty was plagued with vivid dreams. I dreamt of the light again, Barney. We were taken aboard, she told him. Her dreams were filled with details about the ship's interior, the beings, and their physical examination. On October 21st, 1961, Barney reported the incident to the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomenon, or NICAP and officially opened a case. Concerned about their lost memories and Betty's distressing dreams, they sought professional help. Dr. Benjamin Simon, a psychiatrist specializing in hypnosis, agreed to work with them. And that's the end of the first part. This is not the first documented case of UFO abductions. Oh, he spoiled it. (laughs) (laughs) But it might be the first really well documented with government documentation of sheriff reports, Government reports. Government reports? Yeah. This was like a Project Blue Book was opened up on it, which Mm -hmm. if you don't know what Project Blue Book is, that's like the US government's 1960s X-Files, if you will. Okay. We're venturing into the realm of of UFOs for the first time. That's right. We are starting to talk about aliens. I didn't say aliens. I said UFOs. Aliens. <laughs> we said beings. There were beings. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's it's, it. It is. I this guess it is, could be a human driving it. And well, like, the, hey. Yeah. This story has all those levels. The UFO, then yeah. the beings on on the UFO, yeah. so, and then the abduction component and the straight up supposed aliens. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So any initial thoughts here before we jump into the... Psychiatrist uh, hypnotherapy sessions. Initial impressions. Yeah, I, I 
I have not heard of this case, so that's exciting. Um, you probably have, or you probably have seen it por- portrayed in popular television. Yeah, and that's sort of sort of in my textbook. Yeah. Like it, it just sounds. This is the book. This is this the is book the book, came, the textbook that, that it came that from. That every episode of the X Files yeah. that ever mentioned anything to do with with Mulder's sister's abduction or subsequent every other abduction that happens on that show. Yeah, and then. All sorts of other predating the X Files, you know. Yeah, and movies I think the, from the '60s on. Right, and yeah. I think the idea here is that, like I said, it had been well documented by a, a government entity or two, whether that was local or federal. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we're going to get into uh, a psychiatrist who's going to do hypnoregression therapy. We'll talk about that in a second. But so there's there's those records. All of these records, by the way, are stored. I think at the University of New Hampshire. There's like a whole like box. I guess that you can go to the library and check out about this case. And there are transcripts like the Hills were like, yes, you can. This can all be public. Mm-hmm. We can. We're, we're 100 percent OK with that. And I think yeah. the other part of this is that the Hills themselves, Betty is a um, a trained, uh, a uh, an educated and trained social worker. <laughs> What's his name? Barney. Barney. Betty and Barney. Betty and Barney. So confusing. You, these are. Like, did you get these names from the Flintstones no, or something? No, right, right. <laughs> Barney was a, a World War II veteran. I ha- I wasn't able to find anything on his record in World War II. I heard some rumors, and we'll talk about those in a second uh, after we, we're done talking about the psychiatrist. But so the idea here is that you have two members of a community heavily involved in civil rights uh, activities, heavily invested in their communities, yeah, well-educated, well-versed, well-respected members of society. Two questions come to my mind. Yeah. Well, one one observation. It's really interesting when there are two people who's, who corroborate a story together. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that it's, it necessarily corroborate, validates it you right. know, from a psychological perspective, but that's interesting. And then a question that I'm sure you'll piece, we'll piece together, but did they continue with their civil rights activism after this? I believe so. I don't think they stopped that. Oh, I, I really didn't see know. anything okay. about that. Okay. We can look it up before the end. Okay. Those are my just first two pieces. Okay. That's no, it's fine. That, that, like that I had never, that this is so classic in the details, but also I had never heard of their names. And it gets more classic. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're going to notice a lot of themes that are popping up in this. Yeah. And when we talk about other UFO abductions, because we will, mm-hmm. we'll probably always come back to this one okay. and say, remember Betty and Barney? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and of course, I'm not at all surprised. Are, are they black? Barney is an African-American. Okay. And Betty is white. Okay. And so, so they're an interracial, so an interracial couple, couple, couple in the 60s. In the 1960s I'm not at all yeah. surprised that their story was probably later than whitewashed in various versions or pieces taken from it and then the story not really told. Huh. Yeah, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Their story is, again, once like 100% public. But I'm just ignorant of it then. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, if you're not going around looking for UFO stories, then you're not going to find it. I'm not, except for here. Right. Once a week. <laughs> okay. You ready to move on to the last segment here? Yeah. Part two. Okay, part two. The Hills, troubled by their missing memories and Betty's disturbing dreams, decided to seek professional help. They turned to Dr. Benjamin Simon, a well-known psychiatrist and neurologist based in Boston. Dr. Simon was renowned for his work using hypnosis to treat patients with post-traumatic stress disorder. When they first met Dr. Simon, they explained their bizarre encounters and their subsequent missing time. That's quite a story, Dr. Simon said after the Hills had finished telling him all they could remember. I'd like to help you. We can start immediately. Dr. Simon did not believe in UFOs or the supernatural, but something had happened to this couple and he was determined to help them find peace, as a doctor should want to do. 
The hypnotherapy session started in early 1964, more than two years after the incident. They were conducted separately to avoid any chance of the couple influencing each other's recollections. During her sessions, Betty recalled being taken aboard the spacecraft. They let us up a ramp, she said under hypnosis. The beings, they weren't human. She described them as short, with grayish skin, large eyes, and wearing uniforms. She also detailed the physical examination they conducted, which involved taking samples of her hair, nails, and skin, as well as a needle being inserted into her belly. This was explained as a pregnancy test. They told her this they, was a They explained test? everything that they were doing to them. Uh, they also told them not to be afraid mm -hmm. the entire time. And they were... Gray beings. Grayish skin, uh -huh. large eyes, wearing uniforms. Okay. Short. Mm -hmm. Yep. The little gray men. Right? Mm -hmm. Grays. The there's there's literally a term for them now. Yeah, the grays. One of the most notable results of Betty's hypnosis is the star map that Betty Hill drew after her session with Dr. Benjamin Simon. This map supposedly depicted a star system from which the extraterrestrials that abducted her and Barney originated. Under hypnosis, Betty described being shown a star map by the beings aboard the spacecraft. She said it was like a three-dimensional projection of sorts, with many stars of various sizes. Some of them were connected by lines, which according to the beings represented trade routes or frequent travel paths. A few weeks after her hypnosis session, Betty drew a version of the map from memory at Dr. Simon's suggestion. She drew a number of circles for stars, some connected by lines and others that were not. At the time, the map did not correspond to any known star system from an Earth-based perspective as seen by astronomers. The star map remained a curiosity until 1968 when a woman named Marjorie Fish saw it in a book about the Hill abduction. Fish was an amateur astronomer and school teacher and was intrigued by the map. She believed that it might be possible to determine which star system the map represented. Fish constructed several three-dimensional models of nearby parts of our galaxy, based on distances between stars from catalogs available at the time. After several years of work and refinements, she concluded that the star system in Betty's map most clearly matched a view of the double star system of Zeta Reticuli, as seen from a specific vantage point in space. How well did it match? 100%. I don't have percentage on how well it map matched. We can look up. We can look at the picture. It's important to note that this interpretation of Betty's map has been met with both support and criticism from the scientific community. Supporters argue that the match is too close to be a coincidence, especially given the related accuracy of the map to known stellar distances. Critics, however, argue that the apparent match could be due to pure chance and that the statistical methods used by Fish and others to verify the match were flawed. Okay, so it's mixed on how well it matched. Right. I don't know how mixed. <laughs> there are proponents, there are critics. Okay. So that was Betty. That was Betty's session. She had how many? Just the one session? No, they had multiple sessions. Okay. Um, in these sessions, things came out. Uh, you can listen to the audio from it. He recorded all of it. Really? It's sometimes rough to listen to because both of them get pretty upset. Mm -hmm. With that being said, let's move into Barney. Mm -hmm. Barney's sessions were much more emotionally charged. He expressed fear and anxiety during his recounting. I felt like I was going to be captured, he said. I saw beings with large eyes looking at me. They were somehow not frightening. He also described a physical examination similar to Betty's, focusing particularly on his eyes, ears, mouth, and teeth. The consistency between Betty and Barney's independent accounts added credibility to their story. Despite Dr. Simon's initial 
skepticism. Dr. Simon concluded that while their experience was likely the result of a stress-induced hallucination, their relief in the events was genuine, and he had diagnosed this as a single psychological aberration. The hypnosis session with Dr. Simon ended in June 1964, and the Hills were left with a set of memories that, whether fact or fantasy, profoundly affected their lives. Their story, popularized by a 1965 Boston Traveler article, became one of the most famous reported cases of alien abduction. This is a multi-part, multi-level paranormal case. <laughs> it's an alien abduction case, mm -hmm. right? It's it's not it's not anything necessarily new when it comes to alien abductions, mm -hmm. but it's new to the podcast for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Which is why I said and and for me alien abduction cases or or UFO sightings, again it's so weird that it's to me it's a very strange thing that's considered paranormal because it it's just something that happens all the time. And I get that, you know, we've talked about defining paranormal yeah. and how it's not always ghosts <laughs> or demons yeah. or cryptids, right? It's just something that's like you can't usually describe or explain with modern science. I suppose it's outside of... Outside of normal. Normal. <laughs> <laughs> it is para And defining normal is, normal. is a, a constant pursuit. But yeah, it's definitely something that you can't answer with uh, objective scientific data. So right. you said, and yeah, UFO sightings happen all the time. Right. Because UFOs are unidentified flying objects or UAVs, unidentified aerial P UAPs, unidentified aerial phenomena. So it's just a broad term for things we don't know about in the sky. And then the things we don't know about becomes the subjective part, like who does know and who doesn't know. Right. And that's then where the multi-level part comes in of the civilian level, the, quote, you know, quote, government level, the intergovernmental level, the scientific level. Right. Yeah. So that's where, what I kind of mean by multi-level, <laughs> multi-part piece. Because there's, there's the question of what happened to these people and then what the professionals and the agencies that they supposedly, supposedly interacted with think happened. Right. So I'm not sure that the, maybe it does, but I'm not sure that this warrants a government cover-up scenario because I'm, I don't think the government tried to cover this up. I think they actually got in there and investigated it. Yeah. I don't know if they ever released anything to the public where they were like, here's exactly what happened. Mm -hmm. I don't know about that, but mm -hmm. this was something that was filed with NICAP. It was something that they opened up a Project Blue Book file on, which mm -hmm. is something that we'll talk about a lot, I think, on this podcast, when, especially when it comes to UFO cases. But um, So what is that? That's one of the levels we're talking about here. Is who who knows about this case? And is it a f like officially documented by some agency like NICAP? Okay, well, let's talk about Project Blue Book real quick. Is that okay? Mm -hmm. Project Blue Book was a U.S. Air Force program that was established to investigate and analyze reports of un unidentified flying objects or UFOs from 1952 to 1969. Its primary goal was to determine whether UFO sightings posed any potential threat to national security and to scientifically study the nature of these sightings. The origin of Project Blue Book can be traced back to an earlier program called Project Sign, which was created in 1947. Project Sign was tasked with evaluating UFO sightings and its findings were initially inconclusive. I don't know what that means. Mm -hmm. Like inconclusive? They don't know that they didn't see the things that maybe somebody saw? I don't know. That, that sounds really... Fake? No. 
I've, it's, it's, I was going to say official, but I don't, I've never investigated it myself or anything. So I don't know. It's so far out of my professional domain. Okay. So in 1952, Project Sign was replaced by Project Blue Book. Uh, under the leadership of Captain Edward J. Rupelet, Project Blue Book collected and investigated thousands of UFO reports. The program employed a team of scientific consultants and investigators who would examine witness testimonies, conduct interviews, analyze photographs, and evaluate physical evidence associated with UFO sightings. They classified sightings into various categories, including identified, insufficient information, and unidentified. Identified as in they know what it is now, and they're ruling yeah, it out. Okay. Right. Despite the efforts of Project Blue Book, the program faced criticism from skeptics who believed that its conclusions were predetermined and that it dismissed legitimate UFO sightings. Over time, public interest in UFOs grew and the program faced increasing scrutiny. In 1969, the U.S. Air Force officially ended Project Blue Book, citing that it had fulfilled its purpose of addressing public concerns and determining that UFOs did not pose a threat to national security. The Air Force concluded that the majority of UFO sightings were mis- identifications of natural phenomena, mm -hmm. such as weather balloons. That's not natural. Astronomical objects or aircraft. That's not natural either. Maybe they mean, yeah, explainable man-made phenomena. Yeah. So that that's Project Blue Book. So that's something, that's... yeah. So this was, a, this, was, this was one of those cases that they investigated where they were like, this is something we need to take seriously. Mm -hmm. Let's go check it out. Okay. And we don't, and do we know that, how did they classify this one? I have no idea. I would like to. But they are now no longer in existence. So, well, that's so neat. I think that's really neat. I think that that's kind of what we wish many of the most common paranormal phenomena would have is some kind of group of people who take all of those approaches they described, objective, scientific, interviews, and then come to conclusions. We need X-Files for real. Right. And that's what this was. So Project Blue Book classified the case as insufficient information. Okay. Yeah. So they don't know. Even Project Blue Book was like, we have no idea. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. I can, it sounds like there is insufficient information. There are pieces of this that you described that sound like, quote, physical evidence, like yeah. the pink film. The pink film, which and was, it was taken is, to a lab and uh -huh. it was analyzed. And they, I think that was inconclusive as well. Inconclusive. Like, what does that mean? Do they have nothing? Right. They don't what know. <laughs> I don't know. How do you not know what a substance is? Yeah. Like, oh, an unknown substance. You mean, you mean... Uh, out from not of this earth like what does that mean that was a it was a lab in the 1960s yeah. you know like who knows yeah but is it carbon based is it just like some you know is it of this world I, I suppose it probably was i i don't know i can't feel like i can't make right any... that's another thing so just because aliens are hanging out like coming down here from outer space doesn't mean that they're bringing all kinds of stuff that doesn't exist here yeah yeah you're getting at a a very okay, high yeah, level. I mean, maybe uh, yeah, maybe yeah. we can start with the details. Yeah, and let's, <laughs> first of all, let's jump into your conclusions and, and what you think about. Um, well, first know. of all, what do you think about their experience? Let's, yeah, let's start there. Yeah, let's start yeah. the experience and then we'll go into the psychiatric stuff. Okay. Yeah, I like that. There's there, That is one level. So this is a couple driving along a road and... A rural road. Okay, so they're driving along a rural road in the dark and he, Barney gets this, like they see, they see something in the sky. Betty sees it first. Right. And that's what's so interesting. Okay. So Betty sees it first, but then Barney's like track, like keeping an eye on it and then it's following them. And he comes to the conclusion, we can't outrun this. So I'm going to pull over. So a couple of the accounts I read said that Barney was an airman mm -hmm. 
And so he was kind of a avionics nerd. Yeah. Okay. And so he would stop like he would it wasn't rare for him to stop on the side of the road to look up at aircraft and try to identify them and yeah, through binoculars. He had his binoculars handy in the yeah. car. Uh-huh. Yeah, he was he was apparently just an aircraft nerd. Okay. Which is totally fine. And I, I get he was a veteran of a foreign war. He was you know, he, he, one of his, who knows, it was, it was kind of hard to find what his job was in the Air Force. Uh-huh. I, I don't know during World War II, but it might, one of his jobs might have been identifying aircraft as they were flying. You know, he might have been a yeah. gunner, a ground gunner. He yeah. might have been inside aircraft gunner. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. So, so he, this was, this was like a pastime of his. A pastime. And from a psychological perspective, then I'm getting in my mind someone who is occupied or maybe preoccupied with aerial phenomenon mm. and who and we can't obviously make generalizations about World War II veterans but if he saw action and was in the air he, he might have some pretty intense fear-based associations with aerial phenomenon mm, okay so that's kind of the history that I yeah. might be questioning okay. that this isn't spontaneous like this person never had any <laughs> any experience like this before right mm. uh, he's a war vet yeah and in some ways, you might argue it makes him more qualified to identify something in the sky or to be paying attention to things most people don't. But we have to remember that there's attention and then there, there's vigilance and awareness. And then there's like hypervigilance and hyper awareness where we're no longer um, as objective as we might be with clear headed awareness. Right. Mm hmm. Yeah. yeah. This was a couple. It was a biracial couple in the 1960s. He was a war veteran. He was a combat veteran. So he had seen we don't know what he had seen but world war ii stationed overseas probably saw some atrocities mm-hmm. um probably witnessed some deaths if nothing else he is a an african-american a black man in the united states in the 1960s so he doesn't even have civil liberties that he should have according to the constitution of the united states at the time and that he's fighting for that he's fighting for mm-hmm. him and his wife are both members of the naacp they're both fighting for these rights there's they're not just members like they're civil rights activists yeah he's on the board of the local mm-hmm. chapter i think mm-hmm. was what was what it was mm-hmm. um and then she she's a volunteer i think in some some respect so mm-hmm. there's a lot to unpack there i'm not a black man mm-hmm. in the 1960s mm-hmm. i have no way to relate to this but i'm guessing that it's very stressful at the time, yeah. but I'm guessing that they were just stressed in general. Now they were coming back from a vacation um, in somewhat of a foreign country in Canada, <laughs> mm-hmm. so I, I don't I, and I don't know what what racial um, issues there might have been in Canada at the time. I have no idea. Yeah, we have, I have no idea. All I know right. is it was probably a very I don't know if they went to what part of Montreal, but I know that they're driving through New Hampshire. Literally the White Mountains of New Hampshire. It's a very white area, yeah. too. I don't know what kind of stress the trip was like for them. Right. Um, yeah, getting back in the country. Yeah. So we can make some assumptions or we can, you can kind of guess that there were other stressors in their life going on. And yeah. and not just, oh, man, on Friday I have, you know, this big report due. We're mm-hmm. talking about deep-seated sociopolitical mm-hmm. issues with their rights as human beings mm-hmm. in a country yeah. that didn't that was conflicted. Mm-hmm. That's a very PC way to say it. Yeah, we were shitty. Yeah, I mean <laughs> we're, we were, we're a shitty we society. Were. We were. It's oh, totally sorry. Yeah, no, no, I know, I know. It's uh, we're still we're still fighting the same yeah. fight. Mm-hmm. Um, couples like this are still fighting the same fight, and it's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Um, with all that being said, you know, go, <laughs> <laughs> go isn't what that might mean about this experience. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I think about the when it, when the the question is really okay. It's a couple, and it's two people saying they went through this together. How is that explainable, right? I mean, if you unless they're both 
they're both hallucinating the same right. thing. What? How does that happen? So it's from my understanding with couples based experiences like not like this, but there's kind of the couples we the version of ourselves we present and then what's really going on behind closed right. doors. There's always so much more to it in every relationship. Right. And and so it could be a myriad of things. One piece that comes to my mind is one of the two of them was probably experiencing some kind of psychiatric episodes, uh, mental health dis- distress, hmm. and that was affecting the other person. And it may be, it might might be on the surface of this that maybe perhaps Barney had some stressors and maybe even post-traumatic stress from, from military experience, as the Dr. Hill's going to address, but um, that he had a preoccupation or uh, I want to say like maybe a paranoia or maybe um, a hallucination or delusions around Mm -hmm. aliens. Mm -hmm. And that maybe then it reached like a a psychotic episode at this night, perhaps. And Betty's with him and he's saying this is all happening and she might believe it, you know, to the extent she's like, like that he's driving and he sees this object and the stories can get changed over time afterward. Um, whether it be because one of you know one person wants to protect their partner or is like becomes um, to comes to believe it too, and so we might think of that as like the contagion or uh, secondary traumatization mm-hmm. or shared delusion. There are many different uh, like considerations for that and yeah. ways people might label it or diagnose different pieces going on. But it's not impossible for two people to share at least either the experience of or the reporting of something like this that's not based in reality. Okay. And Mm -hmm. so let's dive into the uh, hypnoregression therapy. Is that the proper terminology? Yeah, I think so. I think that's what he said that he was doing. Right. Right. And so, again, I'm not sure if I said this already or not because we've had to stop and start this recording Mm -hmm. about 20 times, but part of of the reason why is it Barney? Mm Mm-hmm. Part of the reason why Barney uh, agreed to go and do this hypnotherapy and actually part of the reason why he finally did submit a case to NICAP was because Betty was so insistent. She kept having these dreams, these reoccurring dreams over and over and over again. And so finally, I was like, okay, if you read the story and read between the lines, it kind of does sound a little bit like that. Like he was like, I'm tired of hearing about this. Let's just, let's, let's seek help. You know, mm-hmm. I think he really wanted to seek help and figure out what was to going on. To appease her, to placate her. Mm-hmm. Right. And and he was so open about all this. Mm-hmm. Like, he was okay with it. With, uh, afterwards, he was okay with submitting these tapes and everything that went along with them to um, public domain, basically, and saying, anybody who wants to listen to these or read these, or these these are these are submitted, right? These are, we're, we're okay with sharing this information. Mm-hmm. He reportedly had a much more, int- she had a much clearer experience of what she saw and what happened during the hypnoregression therapy. Mm-hmm. He had a much more emotional experience with it. Mm-hmm. But again, if you're a combat veteran and you've seen some shit, mm-hmm. And that is something that I can talk about <laughs> a little bit. Um, it bleeds into other parts of your life, and mm-hmm. it bleeds into other things. So that, anecdotally, of course, that's that's kind of how I see it. Now you work, you've worked with veterans before, mm-hmm. um, combat veterans who have had, uh, who have. I, I don't, I don't want to speak for you, but you know, PTSD-like events in their life, events in their life which have caused uh, post-traumatic stress, have yeah. had tra- traumatic events in their life. Yeah. I have years of experience working with trauma-exposed military service members and treating PTSD. There you go. Yeah. 
Um, I am not a hypnotherapist. No, no, no. And I'll talk about about why, though. I have have strong feelings about I want to hear that, but I Mm -hmm. I didn't mean to insinuate that you were. What I'm Mm -hmm. getting at, though, is that uh, while I am a combat veteran Mm -hmm. and have experiences, you are somebody who has worked with multiple combat veterans Mm -hmm. who have had probably more horrific or traumatic experiences than I ever had. Uh, while in theater. So my point being is that you can speak to this at a level that I think a lot of other people, even even back then, that World War II, um, first of all, that psychiatrists and psychologists didn't even have the tools that you have now. Right. Oh, yeah. It's changed so much. Right. Um, I was kind of surprised when you had noted that Dr. Hill w- was providing, was a psychiatrist and neurologist specializing in the treatment of post-traumatic stress disorder with an outpatient basis. That is... Like to me, very surprising I, that he someone was doing that in the '60s. I feel like that's I feel like that's um what do they call it retro uh, retro terminology applied to uh, I'm sorry I guess modern terminology apl- applied to um mm-hmm. applied to what he was or what he did at the time right yeah. so there wasn't really like the name would have been you know what do we call it? shell shell shock syndrome oh, yeah. or something like that I was gonna know? look that up because I know that like the current and the, the diagnostic criteria has changed even in the last decade but that the current conceptualization of PTSD is really 1980s mm-hmm. and beyond. So before that, but I think they had, I, I, he's I got the shell shock. And yeah, I, think that's, I think that's civil, battle fatigue. Yeah. Yeah. These, civil war, I think I, is shell shock. So I think that's yeah, a it's battle fatigue is more common. And right. then like, uh, there was another one in between that and post-traumatic stress disorder. But I think, I think they might've been using PTSD by the sixties. I, that's, a completely empirical question, historical question we can right. look up. But, we can look it up. We're probably yeah, not going to because we need to continue on with this. Yeah. But um, absolutely. So mm-hmm. uh, because of regressive therapy. Yeah. Actually. Right. So let's talk mm-hmm. a little bit about the hip. hip the, I want to hear your thoughts on the hypnoaggressive regression. Mm-hmm. So would it help if I talk a little bit about hypnosis and levels of consciousness yes. before I go into the therapy version of it? Yeah. Okay. So hypnosis is not, <laughs> sleep is not exclusive to therapy. You, I mean, you've seen illusionist shows, magician shows. They do hip, hip, hypnotists who do, <laughs> yeah. And you're a chicken. You <laughs> do a chicken dance. Cluck like a chicken, <laughs> and then they then they can't bring you out, and then you're a chicken for the rest, for the rest of, your, of life. your life. Now, yeah. So there's there's an exaggeration in that, and sometimes there. We could do probably an episode on that, on just like. <laughs> Ooh. Okay. <laughs> on. Uh, people getting stuck in hypno, hypno, stuck, hypnotic yeah, states. Yeah, like do, do people get stuck in. Um, the office space, right? I can't. Oh. Remember he goes to a hypnotherapist oh, right. and he's like, you need to be more chill. And then <laughs> the hypnotherapist dies. Yeah. And then he's just super just, chill for the rest of his chill. life. I love that. Yeah. So that's parable obviously but um the so hip, hypnosis is possible i mean not not to every single person and not to every uh sa- the same level with everyone and that is because consciousness is a very um malleable and uh multifaceted experience and it's something we don't talk a lot about on a on the nuanced way we should i think we talk a lot about unconscious versus conscious mm. and we talk about unconscious motions we talk about unconscious memories we talk about um uh like un, um what's the word we talk about like subliminal messaging stuff mm. like that but what we really should just first talk about is levels of consciousness we're all experiencing them every day mm-hmm. and it's everything from I think I'm in one right now. What are you? Am I putting you to sleep? No, I'm, I just think that I'm in a level of consciousness right now. Hey, yes, you are. <laughs> I am too. Gosh, I hope so. Um, because you're 
alive. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So, and I hope that everyone listening is awake and alert to some extent. You might be relaxed. You might be falling asleep. <laughs> Hopefully um, that you are some level of awareness is really what we mean by consciousness. Yeah. And so you've got everything from, again, alert, wide awake to sleepy and um, levels of consciousness in our sleep. We go through like four different, at least different levels of, of brain activity while we're sleeping. Um, and then there's like unconscious can vary too. So you've got like loss of consciousness, you know, you ring your, ring your bell, um, brief loss of consciousness all the way to like coma, yeah. you know? Um, so which is a state you don't want to be in. No. Mm-hmm. No, 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 unless, unless you're- Some of these states definitely sound more desirable than other ones. <laughs> yeah, and we didn't even talk about altered states of consciousness that are induced by Drugs. substances. What, what? So um, that's, that's- We all know about those. Right. Kids, don't do drugs <laughs> unless you really want to. Yeah. So hypnosis relies on the ability to intentionally manipulate levels of consciousness. And to do that- uh, with various methods. So again, I'm not a hypnotist, I'm not a hypnotherapist. I don't, all to the extent that I know how to manipulate levels of consciousness is just like everybody else. I know how to get sleepy and how to relax. I meditate, um, those, those kinds of things. So real quick, while yeah. researching this, I, I'm, I don't want to interrupt because I want you to keep going, but while okay. researching this, I do remember now there was a, I think it was on the history channel. They did like a whole episode on this, mm. um, you know, ancient aliens or something. I don't remember. Um, but they did have a hypnotherapist on there and she had initials after her name. And I mm-hmm. can't remember what those initials are, but I looked them up. I dove, I did a deep dive and there is an institute yeah. um, where you can go and you can get your hypnotherapy license. Yeah. And I was very tempted because the credentials you needed, the prerequisites were like nothing. Yeah. You just had to apply really and pay $300 yeah. and then take this class that costs a thousand. It's a certificate $1, then, probably not yeah. a license. Yeah. No, I, I don't know. I think it was uh-huh. a licensed hypnotherapist according to- Oh, interesting. Okay. A, according to this Institute of Hypnotherapy. Oh, and it varies by where you are. I will put yeah. I will put the link for that in the show notes. I'm not saying that it's legitimate uh, or I'm not saying that it's illegitimate. Yeah. But what I am saying is that if you want to do some research on, on your own, just so you can double check my work here because I'm, I'm talking about this super third hand because I just glanced at it yeah. at once because I was like, who is and this? And there are probably multiple places that certify hypnotherapy. Sure. And I'm going to tell you why, because there are different types of hypnotherapy. Okay. Yeah. I, I do. I do want to hear that. Yeah. yeah. Let's, let's get into that. Okay. So that's just like what hypno, hypnotherapy is based on the concept of hypnosis mm-hmm. that I was just describing. Um, so the, I, and this is, again, I'm not a hypnotherapist, so I'm going to just give you like a very cursory, my understanding mm-hmm. of the rationale for some of the types of hypnotherapy. Okay. So in the idea kind of being that when you're in an altered state of consciousness, such as hypnosis, mm-hmm. there may be then an ability to access different psychological mechanisms. Okay. Mm-hmm. So simply put, you a person under hypnosis may be more in a might say relaxed state or an open state emotionally. Mm-hmm. So they may be able to open up to emotions, feelings, um, and uh, all the pieces that go along with that, motivations that they otherwise might be closed off to. Like mm-hmm. when we're in full consciousness with our full frontal cortex and executive control and we're like filtering ourselves, mm-hmm. that filter might be down. Mm-hmm. Um, so they can access their emotions. That's a one rationale for this. So you've got- I just drink alcohol for that. Well, you, you enter an altered state of consciousness through a substance <laughs> instead of through someone hypnotizing you. 
right? So in that altered state of consciousness, a hypnotherapist whose rationale is we're going to help you open up to your emotions. That Mm -hmm. might be some of what uh, hypnotherapy is all about. I think that's one of the more common uses today. Okay. Um, And I'll describe why the other two are problematic in some ways. Okay. So the second sort of being... When you're the the idea, and this is regressive hypnotherapy, I think uh, you're in, so what they went through. Yeah. Okay. So Barney and Betty. Yeah. So the idea being that we can also access memories that we might have repressed. That is pot- potentially more debatable than the first form, first motivation or rationale for hypnothera- hypnotherapy. Okay. Because it's pretty clear we know that when we're in a fully alert. Um, state of awareness, we do control our emotions. Like we use our cerebral cortex to control and inhibit our emotions. Okay. So the idea being when you're in an altered or lower state of consciousness, you're, that inhibition is lower. That makes sense for the first rationale. But we don't know that we for sure repress memories deeply. We don't really know that for sure, as far as I understand. Like, so in all of your work with trauma, uh-huh. you there's never been anything... Repression is different from suppression or avoidance. Okay. So repression sort of being the idea that you can avoid or push a conscious experience down so much that you forget it, that you've repressed it, and you can't access it in your conscious awareness. So what's the difference? The difference is that choice about accessing it in your conscious awareness. Okay, so you are- so Fully conscious alert. Okay, what's the difference Mm -hmm. between hypno-regression therapy and what you do with people who have had traumatic- Okay. Yes. Yeah, I can go into that. So (laughs) that's what- the the rationale for hypnoregressive therapy is that a person has needs has repressed a traumatic experience whether consciously or not like they chose to avoid okay. to the point of suppressing it or they were a child when it happened and it's been so long mm-hmm. that they don't they don't know if they repressed it as a child or forgot it okay because of life and now something is quote triggering them that must be related to some trauma they aren't aware of. Okay. And so I'm going to help them find that trauma mm-hmm. by hypnotizing them and then in- interviewing them about their life. And we're going to try to find a target point. Again, I'm getting into the details of how to do it and I don't do it, so I don't mm-hmm. know how, mm-hmm. but I know there are problems with that rationale because of the third rationale for hypnosis okay. in general, not hypnotherapy, but a third rationale for for why you might hypnotize someone is because of when we're in a lower state of consciousness, we're also very suggestible. Mm-hmm. So that's why entertainment-based hypnotists do what they do because mm-hmm. you can suggest to someone you're a chicken and they'll act like a chicken when they're in a highly suggestive dreamlike state. So that's the problem with a therapy that relies on, I'm going to get you in a, into what we know is a suggestible state and that I'm going to ask you questions that are leading. potentially leading. Mm-hmm. And they don't even, how do you get someone to find a trauma without asking questions about distressing experiences? You have to some, to some extent, lead them to the, for, through the emotional piece to something that they're going to then tell you happened. If this were a episodic thing that happened though, mm-hmm. so there's a time frame where yeah. you can point them to a yeah. time frame and not say what traumatic thing happened. You're going to say, tell me about your trip to Niagara Falls. Yeah. So let's go back to Barney yeah. and Betty. So, and then I'll, I will get to what I do with trauma therapy. If you really, if you want me to go into okay. how then do you treat PTSD? Uh, if you want to go into it. Yeah. Yeah. I think you asked me what's the difference between this and I what did. I do. So I yes. will, but I, I think that's not necessarily the focus for our audience of like what happened with Barney and Betty. So the Dr. Hill is like, he he's, these people have 
um, what he called a psychological aberration, which is what now we would call like dissociative amnesia. So they have a, a gap in their autobiographical memory of two hours mm-hmm. at a specific time point. Mm-hmm. And they also had um, dissociative fugue. So they they said they traveled. They they were traveling, or they might have traveled. Right? They had that their torn clothes and some substances on them. Well, they woke up and they were driving. Yeah, but they <laughs> like, were driving when it started too, right? No, no, they oh. had pulled over on the side of the road. Oh, so the gap started when they pulled. Where they had pulled over. Yeah, because the aliens were like, st- keep staring at us. Stay, stay where you are. Right. The next thing they remember, they were back yeah. on the road. Yeah. So that dissociative fugue is if you're you're having an amnesia of an autobiographical moment of your life and you traveled. <laughs> That's what the fugue means. You wandered, yeah. which is really dangerous. Yeah. What kind of asshole aliens are these who are like, uh, put them back in their car. They're going to be fine. Just let them drive. Like, <laughs> yeah. what a bunch of dickheads. Yeah. It's so dangerous. Yeah. Cruel. I know. To, like, if they want to study us, fine. But first of all, ask our permission, maybe. And yeah. I'm sure there's a group of people out there who would love to have you probe them in the butt. Like, number oh boy, one. We don't, yeah, we're, you're entering the like rational domain of why aliens would do this. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Stop. Stop probing people who don't want to be probed and throwing them back yeah. in their car yeah. in a drunken state and saying, "Go ahead and drive." Like, you're not even putting their lives in danger necessarily. You might be putting other people's lives in danger. Yeah. As you say, people would volunteer for this. So and so oh, many yeah. humans want to know you're out there, aliens. Like, just talk with us. <laughs> I would volunteer, but I'd be very. I'd want to know a little bit well, more. You need informed consent. Mm-hmm. I need to know a little bit more about what kind of probing would be going on. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, so <laughs> you know, I can get on board with him. <laughs> him um, saying, "Okay, these people have some a dissociative amnesia. I'm going to try to help them uncover that uh, memory." Mm-hmm. Is it's a nice motivation, but he he thinks he can do it, like using regressive hypnotherapy. I'm gonna find a memory that you're missing with this method. And again, I think there are still therapists out there who do this. So sorry guys, it's just not my training. It's not what cognitive behavioral therapists do. Mm-hmm. Um, so I it, because we just don't know enough about the brain and cognition to do this without then suggesting memories. So if you're saying, yeah, he could have just asked them, tell me about that night, hypnotizes them, and then is like, the night of da-da-da, what happened? We don't know what his questions were. We do. I mean, you can look them up. Oh, okay. So did he, and so- But I didn't read that. Yeah, I didn't read the whole transcript. I didn't transcripts. look at the transcript yeah. or whatever, but, and, you know, I could do that and deep dive into that a little more. And Yeah, maybe it's a follow-on. It's part yeah. two to this. Maybe we'll do a part two to this or eventually. look at that. And I'll do yeah. a little more research on, on hypnotherapy, but regressive hypnotherapy. Um, because this is the thing that started to happen in the 60s when this type of therapy was really popular, is therapists, really well-intentioned hypnotherapists, were, were aware of the issues of suggestibility. They were aware mm. of that. And so they, they were trying to act really not guide, not ask leading questions, be really neutral. That is still really very difficult to do when Mm -hmm. you're helping people piece together, even when you have context like this. Like it's just very difficult. Also, we don't know what they were already talking about. What did they already believe happened? And how much has that already influenced their cognition because you can't separate memory from fact we had a whole episode on that like our memories we have false memories we have we have um our our descriptions get altered by our conversations by the context so if betty and barney were already saying what if we got abducted oh my gosh what if this happened and they're already kind of creating a potential narrative or what they fear happened to them when someone's in a suggestible state and you ask them what happened that night their fears might come out as fact Right. And you just don't know. So so then the interesting part to me, and as I said, why I think I haven't heard of this case before, mm-hmm. is because what Dr. Hill didn't do, 
is label their experience as truth. He said, they told me they got abducted by aliens. I am diagnosing that as a hallucination. Hmm. That's what he did with the information, right? Sure. He said in your story mentioned that the diagnoses were. Yes. Yeah. I, and I think if you even go on the, I think one of my main sources for this one was Wikipedia, which sounds lame, but they actually had a, fir- a primary source, which I didn't go into because this Simon's conclusion, when the series of hypnosis sessions were complete, Simon wrote an article about the Hills for the journal Psychiatric Opinion explaining his conclusion that the case was a singular psychological aberration. Mm-hmm. And likely the result of stress-induced hallucinations. Uh, sure. Mm-hmm. Their belief in the events was genuine because that's the nature for hallucinations. We, they, When people aren't aware that they hallucinate, people who experience voice hearing or know that they have auditory or visual hallucinations don't go on to always believe them, but that's what good treatment helps people do. Um, so for them... He labeled it as a stress-induced hallucination, psychological aberration, or um, dissociative amnesia episode. And the belief part could be, for one or both of them, part of a delusional belief system around aliens, alien abductions, aliens following them. Right. This mm-hmm. this case is usually touted as the like the grandfather of abduction cases. Mm-hmm. This was kind of the thing that kicked everything off. I don't know if greys or little green men, I don't know if that was a thing before, like a wide no, widely known thing before. And in this case kind of happened and then it became kind of a widely known, uh, what's the word, like, I guess you could say template yeah. for alien abductions. Which is so interesting because as I just, as we were talking about, Dr. Simon didn't label it as credible and real that their stories and that's an interesting piece because you would think if he were like wow they both had corroborating stories that were so detailed and so similar uh, that in the context of interviewing people you know from a from a like a legal perspective you would think that that's credible enough to say they're reliable witnesses or something like that and he might have then labeled it as um truth the reason that i think that's important is and the reason that i know more about hypnoregressive therapy as being problematic in the 60s, 70s, and 80s is because many therapists did just that and were interviewed in the context of court cases and investigations on kidnappings and uh, child abductions, things like that. Mm -hmm. And then those uh, and uh, potential assault cases Mm -hmm. on children and adults where they would do regressive hypnotherapy and the stories that those children or adults told would then be used as testimony. Mm in cases Hmm. and these were this was uh then became many many stories of uh satanic ritualized abductions Mm -hmm. um and it happened so much that it was called satanic panic Mm -hmm. where people's testimonies or um, revelations quote in under hypnosis were then used as evidence in in court and researchers helped to reveal that these were very likely suggested. Mm-hmm. Okay. That the interviewing methods are just too difficult to do without suggesting memories to people because you're putting them in a suggestible state, and children especially. Mm-hmm. That's really sad. We should definitely do an episode, I don't know, because the satanic ritual stuff wasn't paranormal. That's Yeah, that's what yeah. I'm saying, is yeah. that because those cases aren't, it's all really pretty much been debunked as these therapy methods mm-hmm. are... You're going to just induce false memories in people. And so are these types of methods still, are, are they? can you still admit them in court? I don't think so. I don't, yeah. it's probably state by state, country by country, but I'm fairly certain that no, yeah. no, no hypno-regressive memory that is revealed is going to be rock solid or considered reliable. 
So by today's standards, the Hill abduction probably wouldn't be taken very seriously. No, even, but then it was, I'm saying is fascinating. Dr. Simon didn't either. It still became a huge phenomenon. <laughs> People just chose to ignore that whole piece of it. And they probably, for good reason, chose to ignore his whole piece because he was doing these methods that were like, well, how do you know yeah. what really happened? But to say, how do you know what really happened? And then be like, it was real. What they said happened. That doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah. So, okay. Um, that piece of it is why the that method isn't very popular today. So I, I do want to give a little bit of credit to mm. hypnotherapy today for what mm -hmm. it's what it's largely found some research evidence and support for mm -hmm. is that first part of like intentionally helping people to be more open mm -hmm. emotionally to especially and on purpose suggestibility. So hypnotherapy for smoking cessation. That works. It's got some evidence. It's okay. It's not necessarily as great as you know, other Stopping methods. smoking. <laughs> no, it can't help people. And it, no, it's got some evidence. It might be like not an A rating, but um, yeah, because people on purpose are saying, hey, suggest this to me. Help me, you know, um, in a relaxed state, give myself some like mantras for smoking cessation and really mm -hmm. help myself feel confident to do this. Like, And um, so people who are choosing suggestibility and saying, I want to do this to open up and to be suggested, that's that's important. And I think that's where the ethics of hypnotherapy are need to be clarified. Mm -hmm. And that like pe people should do this when they want to have something suggested to them. Mm -hmm. And the, because the person with, it's like, it's why I don't do it as a trauma therapist, because the nature of trauma is you didn't ask for something to happen to you and it did. And so the kind of therapy that I do relies on a person choosing fully consciously to talk about and process and uh, make choices and behaviors to not avoid. Mm -hmm. And I'm not doing anything to them because they've already had people doing too much to them. Mm -hmm. And so the room, the relationship is one of, of partnership, collaboration and they're never going to be in a vulnerable, suggestible state. I might help them relax, but then I'm not going to implant memories. I might ask some questions about what happened, but they're not under hypnosis. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I and and again, this is like one of many UFO cases. Mm -hmm. uh, I guess abductee cases is is more along the lines of what this would be. Um, lots of UFO cases don't necessarily result in abductee cases, and lots of abductee cases don't necessarily aren't necessarily UFO cases. Sometimes mm -hmm. it's just people sleeping in their houses and they get abducted. You know. Um, That's and we'll a get really into those. interesting point. Yeah. 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 We'll get we'll get into some of those and and explore this whole idea a little bit further. Again, for me, do I think it's possible that they were abducted by aliens? Yes, I really do. Mm -hmm. um, I think aliens are, uh, again, it's hard for me to classify them as paranormal. I understand that they are not an everyday occurrence and therefore might be considered, if, if that's the definition of paranormal, then fine. Um, but, you know, we've heard so many astrophysics physicists, so many uh, philosoph uh, philosophers, um, so many uh, people who study this stuff on a daily basis who say it's statist it's almost statistically impossible that we're the only life form yeah. in this vast universe. Yeah. Now, would, a, would that life form travel light years to come and abduct two poor people <laughs> driving home from there? <laughs> Just buzzing along home and they're like, let's abduct mm -hmm. these guys. Let's poke needles into their uteruses. Well, their uterus. One of their uteruses, mm -hmm. and and let's get the fuck out of here, and also mm -hmm. put them in their car to go drive, like and and maybe they're like you know the the universe's equivalent of drunken teenagers. I don't know. Mm -hmm. There's drama. Like, hey, man, let's go to Earth and fuck with some humans. Either way, I am more apt to believe this than anything else. The way that the evidence was found, uh, from what you just said, 
it's a lot harder to believe that it was the hypnoregression therapy that helped that, that helped their case. If anything, I think at this point now, it sounds like it really hurts this case as far as yeah. as far as its credibility. Yeah. And it's again, maybe he asked perfectly neutral questions, mm-hmm. but it's the fact that they were in a suggestible. And I would even say it's even probably more relevant that it's like a dreamlike state mm-hmm. where everything they're saying could just be their creative brain fabricating it. If, if I were dreaming you you and you like nudge me you know, get me talking. I'm going to say some nonsense. Mm -hmm. I'm going to say some wild things. Like there was a lobster in the halls of my high school, like giant man lobster, you know, any wild thing that then. Which if your high school mascot was a lobster, to be fair, it was probably just the guy, the the mascot (laughs) lobby, lobby, the lobster. I'm just thinking of the most random associations, you know? Um, but whatever I was also have been occupied by or dream or thinking about a lot, like, yeah, that's going to be there. Yeah. So even if he didn't suggest it, it was already in you know, something they've been thinking about. It doesn't make it fact. Yeah. And it doesn't make it helpful for them, for someone to say like that that was true or not true. It's too, too bad that that happened. <laughs> it sounds really terrible. I don't know. And again, my mind goes to like, they probably had, they pulled over and there was some, something happened. One of them was having some kind of breakdown um, mm-hmm. emotionally and it could have been conflict. It could have been a number of things that got them with scuffed shoes and torn clothes too. That That's not even evidence. They traveled. Is, is that, it is yeah. it possible they were attacked just by yeah. human, like human assholes yeah. instead of alien assholes? Yeah. Could have yeah. been that too. And it could have been, again, as you mentioned, like socio-historical context, it could have been really a strong motivation to, to not report what happened if they were concerned for their safety? Um, and then again, the stress might—the stress of all of that might have induced like a uh, a false belief around yeah. what did happen, or a narrative that that one of the or both of them was ever- yeah, whatever they needed to yeah, whatever they needed to to get through that. And I hope that they got, they got through it better. I watched a uh, Betty didn't die until pass away but he didn't pass away until i think the mid 90s uh so there was an interview with her on like the 50th anniversary of roswell and she wasn't like i'm not going to that because there's nothing to do with me yeah um she was such a sweet person mm-hmm. and still you know sticks to the story obviously you know not that that's surprising but uh yeah it's i watched this interview and i almost paid i think it was like 50 dollars to get the uh the rights to be able to replay it on a podcast. Mm-hmm. And I almost paid for it because I was like, I was like, oh, she's so sweet. And, yeah. you know, you just, when you listen to her talk about it, you know, she's very, yeah, this happened. And, you know, uh, Barney and I, here's what we did. And, you know, she's just a really, really cool person mm-hmm. to kind of hear talk and, um, and, and to, uh, and to hear her experience still to, you know, up to up until the day, the days before her death of her, you know, talking about it and being open about it and being like, this is what happened. And, um, and yeah, it was, it was our experience. Interesting. Did you say that like the therapy helped her just accept it? They focused, they really heavily. And I think this is where most of this focuses is the star map because that's been the most, Mm -hmm. yeah, that's been the, the, the one thing that's kind of come out of this whole thing Mm -hmm. that, that is, it could be seen as evidence. It could be seen as this is hardcore evidence that they were, she was showing a star map and she was able to draw that from memory, which is interesting because I th- I would think if I was show- if I was terrified and showing a map of Alpha Centauri and the system that surrounds it, I, there's no way I'd be able to remember that. Yeah. Now, hypno-regression therapy, yeah. you know, whatever, maybe that helps or mm-hmm. I don't know. Who knows? But anyway, that, that's that's a lot of stuff that's, that, that is really focused on is uh, is that star map because that is the one thing that people keep pointing to that, that kind of helps. I don't know what you would call it. Is it like 
it's like a it's like a staple that hasn't been curled on at, at the at the ends. Like when you take like a stack of papers mm-hmm. and you staple, you know how there's that thing on the back that curls them around? Mm-hmm. It's like that for people. It's like it staples everything together, but it doesn't truly hold everything 100% mm-hmm. together. Nice. The sta- I'm going to call it the open staple effect. Ooh. I'm coining that term. Oh, okay. It's the open staple effect. And yeah. it happens with almost all paranormal tales where-, where be like, but what about the star map? Right. But what about that? Yeah. And you can be like, well, that can be construed as a lot of things. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It could be, but it also could be real. It's the open staple effect. Uh-huh. So, and this happens with every paranormal tale, right? Where it's it's basically that one thing that someone can point to that they can't prove, but you can't disprove. And and we talk about that a lot just on this mm-hmm. podcast alone. We're not here to disprove the paranormal or anything like that, because in a lot of ways you can't you can't disprove the afterlife, right? You yeah, can't right. you can't disprove that in the afterlife. You do have the choice to just hang around mm-hmm. and make sounds on people's audio recorders or or knock on people's doors mm-hmm. or make footsteps happen. Yeah. We don't have the methods to, yeah. to disprove that or to, to study it in general. It seems silly, but, mm-hmm. but maybe it's not to the ghost in the afterlife. Maybe they're like, this is a lot of fun, actually. I always kind of wanted to do this when I was alive. <laughs> it all goes back to ghosts with you, doesn't it? It like does. Everything goes back to ghosts. Maybe the <laughs> so, aliens were ghosts. Yeah. Well, I think the, Maybe the ghosts of aliens, as we as we say that what we try to do here is look at a case by case piece or a method or a particular um, story or thing and not necessarily say this is completely totally impossible. Like the whole realm of do aliens exist is a different question than is this story, ex- this case, especially compelling evidence of that. Yeah. And I don't I don't think that it is. Hmm. Okay. But and it isn't. Yeah, it's just it's a story, and that's and and I hope obviously hope best for the hills. His yeah. names have gotten wrong this whole time. <laughs> well, they both passed away, so yeah, their family and their yeah. legacy, and this isn't at all again ever to disparage people who have distressing experiences. Um, I don't think that I don't think that regressive hypnotherapy served them to have someone tell you, "Hey, I'm gonna have you tell me a story, and it's gonna be fact." Like it's right. just like they're gonna ask you questions in a suggestible state, and then you're gonna interpret it as fact, even when he probably had a hopefully had a feedback session with them where he said, "What I, it doesn't seem credible." But if you tell your patients, "We're gonna try to help you uncover the autobiographical memory you're missing," and then when you don't like what they said because it sounds like a hallucination, when do you decide what is a hallucination, what isn't? Right. And that's why I don't think they're good methods. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so okay. thank you everybody for listening in this week. Uh, once again, if you have a story that you want us to talk, if you have any comments about this story or you have a story that you'd like for us to talk about, it's stories at paranormaloutsiders.com. Mm-hmm. Please send us an email and we'll look into it. Yeah. Thanks for listening. <laughs>